And maybe I would feel better about myself if I toughened up, started working harder, demonstrated discipline, cultivated discipline, quite frankly, and, you know, started doing my thing. And so my version of cleaning my room was I get out of bed in 10 minutes or less, no matter what. And that one thing, and unfortunately, when I was young, I didn't have a Jordan Peterson, but that one thing completely changed the course of my life. So I'm thinking my father-in-law doesn't believe in me. My now fiance will get drugged down if I don't figure this out. And she's literally betting on me and I need to take responsibility. Oh, and by the way, I actually can get better at this. And so you start putting all these pieces together. I start putting rules in my life, like getting out of bed in 10 minutes or less, and things start to change. And I become obsessed with this idea of skills stack. Yo, what's good everybody? This is Hafiz and welcome back to another episode. I'm so glad that you guys are here today. And today, I have an absolute treat for a guest. Guys, I've always been telling you life is a marathon, it's not a sprint. And sometimes the thing that you want is going to happen later on in life. And this guest, I've been working on for such a long time and finally able to get this man on the show. And you guys know how much of a big Jordan Peterson fan I am. And in his book, 12 Rules for Life, Um, Rule number four is compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not who someone else is today. And that rule couldn't be true for anybody because if you are comparing your life to this new roommate, I'm telling you, you'll be sad, you'll feel so behind, (laughs) but don't use his story as comparison to where you're not at because he is on a whole different stratosphere. Use his story to motivate you about the potential that you can unlock and the man that you can be. So, without further ado, please welcome to the show the one and only Tom Bailu. What's up, man? Thank you so much for having me on, dude. I'm excited to be here. No problem, no problem. Thank you so much, Tom, for your time. So, Tom, for those who don't know you, can you give a bit of an elevator pitch synopsis about who you are, what you do, and all that good stuff? I can, yeah. So I uh, go to film school and graduate, think I'm going to get the three-picture deal. I do not, and I start spiraling because I have uh, run into a really hard realization, which is that I don't have talent, and I don't understand the word yet, yet. So I don't realize that I don't have talent yet. I just think that I don't have talent. And so that takes me to a dark place, but that leads me to researching the brain which then changes my life. And I encounter this idea called brain plasticity. Um, And I end up, I write a screenplay. It gets actually turned into a feature film. And the result was very horrifying. I was absolutely crestfallen with how badly it came out. And uh, I meet these two very successful entrepreneurs. And they say, look, you're coming to the world with your hand out. And if you want to control the art, you have to control the resources. So why don't you come with us and get rich? I was like, that sounds amazing. Let's do that. So I thought it would take 18 months. It took 15 years, but it actually did work. And uh, in the process, learn about business, develop a tremendous why uh, for why I'm working this hard, why I'm doing everything. And we end up building three companies. Or sorry, I end up building three companies, two with those same guys. So the first is a technology company uh, that was software security. Learned a lot of lessons there. Uh, Then in sort of rejecting being a slick marketer and just trying to get rich, which was my stated mission for almost a decade. I was like, all right, enough of this. I'm going to do something that makes me feel alive. And that's going to be my new barometer. And from that, um, because my partners ended up feeling the same. So we ended up launching a new company. Everybody thought we were crazy to leave technology to go into nutrition. Uh, But it worked out all right. And uh, we built the company Quest Nutrition took it from not existing to being valued at over a billion dollars in five years, um, had the billion dollar exit, and now finally making good on that early promise of, okay, I'm gonna get the resources so I can build a studio and tell stories my way. Uh, And that leads us to impact theory. And that's what I'm doing now. And impact theory is a 21st century media company that's doing everything differently. And we are here to uh, take on Disney. Oh, wow. 
Now that's a now that's an intro. No, this is really good. It, it, there's a lot of um, parallels to what I experienced in life, so I definitely want to I want to touch on those things. But I want to I want to go backwards. I love the overview. So now let's go into the minutia. So 18 year old Tom Bailu, what was that guy like? He was profoundly lazy. My own mother quietly assumed I was going to fail when I left for college, but I was ambitious. So I really wanted to do something big with my life. From the time I was a little kid, I kept telling everybody, look, I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be rich. And you have to put that in the context of growing up sort of middle to lower middle class. Um, and at one point, my where, dad was- Where were you was growing up at? Tacoma, Washington. Tacoma, so Washington, so that's Seattle yeah. area. Yeah. Yes, but that would be very misleading. So my neighbors had cows and pigs and um, it oh, was like the countryside of Tacoma. OK, it yeah, wasn't yeah, quite yeah, yeah. rural. So I lived right on this bubble where my neighbors had pigs and cows and stuff like that. But it wasn't like industrial scale farming. You know what I mean? It's not like yeah, my next okay, door neighbor had sense. a cornfield. So it was like yeah. at the top <laughs> of my road, there was a guy that had like all these semi trucks I don't know if they rented them out. Or I have no idea. But so one guy, his yard is full of semi trucks. The other person has cows and pigs. So it was like this really interesting where we're outside. Even Tacoma was quite small when I was growing up, like maybe, I don't know, 250,000 people, something like that. So I lived yeah. on the outskirts of that. But I didn't feel like I grew up in a farming town or anything. It just, you know, to me was completely normal. But that was... It was very weird for a kid growing up in that environment to be so convicted that I was going to make it big, right? And so my family used to make fun of me. They all thought I was crazy. Um, and I didn't have the drive to see it through. And that becomes like the big story of my life is the difference between being an empty dreamer and then actually figuring out what it takes to acquire the skill set to actually make your dreams come true. And so like so when Tom, I tell... Go ahead. On my back, keep on going. I was just going to say, when I tell my story, that's the part I want people to understand is that if you had met me at 18 or even 25, you wouldn't have gone, oh, he's going to make it. You would have been like, yeah. whoa, like this guy has big dreams, but damn, like you can't lay in bed for five hours a day and expect to succeed. And that's what I was doing. That makes sense. I was going to ask you about the dichotomy between being lazy and ambitious. So your ambition was your dreams in your your head, but then the laziness was a lack of action in your hands, basically speaking. 100%. And then being afraid that if I actually go try to do this, I'll fail. And so yeah. while I'm dreaming, I can convince everybody that I'm going to be something, but I don't actually have to become it. And when you're mm. young, it's you feel very protected because when you're young, there's a sense of potential future. It's always in the distance. And then as you get into your early 20s, you suddenly realize, wait, this is supposed to be the moment when this is all happening. And so yeah. there's a real like scary sort of period that you go through, which many call the quarter life crisis, where you're like, hey, I thought my life was gonna be a lot different at this point. And what people don't realize in that moment is what's missing is skill acquisition. And so thankfully, I end up figuring that out in my mid twenties and just go on a tear of spending the next you know, 15, now 20 years, of just being obsessed, referring to myself only as a learner. So my identity became entirely that I'm about learning. And so I'll tell people a lot of times, like if you have a PlayStation username or your username on Instagram, whatever, be careful what that says. Because yeah. if you get like Tom is dumb, you know, <laughs> dot com or whatever, which I felt yeah. and certainly <laughs> would have felt honest, but wasn't what I wanted to reinforce. So I ended up getting a domain, which is such a, like it really shows you where I was at in my mid twenties. And the domain was seeking power. And mm. because that was like, I kept saying that to myself, I come seeking power. So I show up yeah. to this book, seeking power. I show up to this seminar, seeking power, right? And for me, yeah. power is close your eyes, imagine a better world. Now open your eyes and get the skill set that will allow you to make that world come true. So it's not a dirty word for me like it is for a lot of people. Yeah. Power is just the yeah. ability to make something come true. No, I love it, but it's funny when you when you when you said 
seekingpower.com. I imagine that started by a 20-year-old um, future villain in a, in a DC movie. <laughs> and that's what everybody but, thinks. But that wasn't what it meant to me. I felt weak of course. and I wanted power, you know what I mean? But not in like course, a dark yes. way. Yeah, power is a totally neutral. It can be used as a virtue or used as a vice. And so, no, I agree with you 100%. So, 18 years old, where did you go to school? Where, where were you going to school at? Uh, I would have, depending on what part of the year you're asking me, I was either finishing high school in Franklin Pierce High School in Tacoma, Washington, or I was at USC Film School. Okay, that's what I was asking because you said that you're, you're about to go to college. And, and, and so, you, so, in all honesty, you weren't that lazy if you got into USC. No, let's if talk I'm, about if that. If I'm not mistaken. No, no, no. Let's talk about that. So I applied to two schools. So this is funny okay. to think back. So first of all, I'm old enough that when I applied to schools, I did it on a typewriter. So let that sink <laughs> in. So you're like actually typing, tuck, 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 tuck. Uh, and so by the time I finished my essay, so I applied to one state school. And then I applied, I was going to apply to USC and NYU film schools. But by the time I got done typing both of those applications, I was like, I'm not doing another one. So that gives you an idea. Now, I was so lazy that I didn't even look into what you had to do to get into film school. So when I say I was in USC film school, it's actually not true. I got into USC, That's not even saying, realizing. Film a master's program. It's a, well, you can do master's. I did not. But it's a whole different application process to get into the film school. But I'm so lazy, yeah. I didn't even know that because I didn't read, I didn't check, I didn't look at any of this. So I go to the like, they do these things where they come to your city and they say, oh, here's you know the beautiful campus and all that. And because USC Film School at that time was so popular, they actually cover in the orientation, hey, if you're thinking about going to film school and then they give you information. And my blood mm. ran cold because I had no idea that it was a separate application process. So when I got into USC, I thought that I just got to pick and say, I'm in film school. And so I was like, wait, what? So I'm like, you can go to USC and not get into USC. I was really freaked out. And then uh, they tell you what SAT score they want to see. And I know they score the SAT different now. But when I was there, 1600 was perfect. Yeah. I got a 990. To yeah. get into film school, they wanted a 1300. So okay. I was like, oh, God, how am I ever <laughs> like going to get into film school? So that ends up being one of the first times where I showed myself that I had something deeper inside of me. But like a human transformation is often messy. It's two steps forward, 18 steps backwards. It's like so it was a really interesting time where I worked incredibly hard to get into film school. And then once I graduated, imploded because of all my fears about not being talented. Mm, no. So do you feel like it was a, um, do you feel like there was imposter syndrome going on while you were, while, um, upon graduation? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wrap it in imposter syndrome because I wasn't, wasn't like I was doing something and trying to convince people that I was good at it. It was, no one's yeah. ever going to let me do this because I'm not good at it. So, yeah. you know, imposter syndrome is more where like, you've somehow managed to get yourself in a position and everybody's going to find out you're a fraud. Like no one was ever yeah. going to find out I was a fraud because I couldn't get anybody to let me do it. So yeah, um, it was no, a <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I guess I asked that because I was I'm thinking that like once somebody because USC Film School I don't know what it was back then I know what it is today. So a lot of my friends went to USC Film School. A lot of them are killing it in Hollywood. So basically, USC Film School is kind of like. Um, Penn Law, you know, it was one of those things where it's like, oh, you, uh, not Penn Law, what's the school, uh, Georgetown Law. It's kind of one of those things where it's like, if you, if you graduated from here, you're going to make it. So that's why I was thinking that maybe there was this fear that, oh, I came out of USC film school, this, you know, elaborate film school that was going to lead to success. But in all honesty, you felt like, man, I felt just as unequipped or just as non-talented as I was when I first started this program. Was that, is that anything similar to what you were experiencing? Yeah, it, it might have even been a little bit more brutal than that. So when I went into film school, I believed that I was that one, to be an artist, you're either born with it or you're not. Yeah. And I believed that I was born with it. So I was like, bro, I got this. Like, I'm a naturally talented filmmaker, gonna go to film school, I'm going to be good. People will recognize how good I am. And film school ironically reinforced that. So I did really well in film school. And oh, wow. I 
there's like a it's kind of a selection process. I won't bore people with the details, but there's this class called 310 and you half the class gets to direct and the other half gets to do cinematography. Not only did I get to direct, but the person that everybody wanted to be their cinematographer chose me. So I was like, oh, wow, bro. I told you, like, I got this. And then, <laughs> so it gets whittled down. And then the next class is like your senior thesis. Only four people in the entire class get to direct one of those films. It's called a 480. And I got chosen to direct one of them. So I was like, you know, here we go. Like, look, I've been saying, you know, I'm going to be one of the greats. I'm naturally talented. Here we go. And then I made my senior thesis film and it was just objectively terrible. And mm -hmm. the worst part was I didn't know how to make it better. So I'm looking at it going, mm. I gave it my everything. I felt lost yeah. and confused through the whole process. Uh, I felt that every like thing that one would need to be good at in order to be a good filmmaker, I just don't have it. So like, I mm. can't, it's really hard for me to close my eyes and imagine like how I want a shot to be and then articulate that out on paper, right? But I don't understand yet the difference between what they call an architect and a gardener. And so an architect mm. is somebody who's like, yep, I know exactly what this is going to be. Boom, they go and do it. And then a gardener is somebody who tries something and it's like, no, it's not working. Why is it not working? And so you try something new until things start to grow and you're like, ah, yes, here it is. But I didn't know that. So now I consider myself a process creator. I have to get in there, mm. try something, see I, I'm not reacting emotionally. Why not? Try something. Oh, there it is. Fuck. And, you know, you start to get it. But yeah. when you mistake that for I'm not talented and you just don't realize like you have to do something a lot to tr like people talk about instincts. Let me tell you, there are precious few things that we actually have instincts for, because let me tell you, if Steve Jobs had grown up on the Savannah 10,000 years ago, he would not have had an instinct for the iPhone. Right. So yeah. it's you, you <laughs> yeah. grow up in a certain area. You train yourself. You spend all the hours, you know, the 10,000 hours, as they call it developing your instincts. So I hadn't done that yet. So I just get really confused. My default assumption is I don't have talent and I'm never going to have talent. And now at, you know, whatever, 21, 22, my entire life from the time I was 12 until then, which is, I mean, when you think about 10 years, when you're only 22 years old, is like, it's, it's virtually all of what you remember. So it feels yes. like my entire life has been aimed at this moment and I'm a loser. And there's no way for me to get better. So it was just really devastating. No, no, that, man, that's that's a that's a powerful, powerful message. It's funny because I I also was about around not at that age, pro probably around 25, which we're gonna get into next for you. But I I was about to go to USC film school, so I find it interesting that um you you end up you end up going there and you end up finishing. So at that 23, 24 mark, uh, was that the point? When you met the, the, the business partners, was, um, was that the time? A little bit later. So I met them, I think, when I was 26. Okay. Almost so what were, you doing, what were you doing up until then? So it's a really interesting confluence of events that end up breaking me out of the matrix. So number one, I'm sliding towards depression at 22, 23. I start reading about the brain. It's the one part of my story. I don't remember what made me think that was the right path might've just been fascination, might've been I came across something in uh, college, I don't remember. But I come across these ideas of the brain and like, is brain plasticity real? Which back in the late 90s was like really debated. Some people were like, yeah. dude, look, you, you can learn and grow until you're about you know, 14, 15. And then after that, it's like, you've got the deck of cards and now it's just about how you play your hand. And mm. other people were like, that's not true. Like you're developing new neurons your entire life. And depending on how you push yourself, you can grow in any direction. So I just decide one day I'm going to act as if it is true that you can get better because it made me feel hopeful. And so it was like one of those times where I'm like, even if this is a lie, it makes me feel so much better. So mm. I'm perfectly happy to lean into the lie because it makes me feel better. And so Right around that time, I also get a job teaching film. So I start thinking, okay, well, this hurts emotionally because the phrase, those that can do, those that can't teach, but I need to mm. eat. So I start yeah. teaching film and I'm reading about the brain. The brain is telling me that I can get better. I'm teaching film and I realize I can actually help them make better films. And so all of a sudden I'm like, wait a second. If 
I can help them get better as a filmmaker. Why couldn't I help myself get better as a filmmaker? Mm -hmm. And so that really started to like, I have the chills now just remembering what that moment felt like where I start putting those pieces together. And then right at that time, I also meet the woman who will become my wife. And it's what I call having a witness to your crimes. So before, if I was broke, if I failed to make my dreams come true, no one suffered but me. And so that let me relax. Once I started making her promises and being like, yo, you don't understand. Like, I'm going to be rich one day. I'm going to make you rich. Like, Mm -hmm. this is going to be amazing. Like, we're going to do this. And now all of a sudden she's like, but you lay in bed a lot. And you say you were writing a screenplay? Like, where are we with the screenplay? And then I went and, you know, when it was clear that she was the one, I went to her father and asked for his blessing to marry his daughter. And he said, no. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was uh, that was amazing. And he's one of the most extraordinary humans I've ever met in my life and has been so kind and so generous to me. But one of the greatest gifts he ever gave me was doubt. And by doubting me at a time where I want to be clear, he was right to doubt me because had I not changed, I was on a path to doing nothing with my life. How old were you at this time? uh, When I proposed, I would have been 25, I think. Yeah. Okay, cool. Either late 20. No, I must have been 25. So um, that ends up bringing shame into the equation. And shame ended up being the thing that actually propelled me forward. And so it's very encouraging to hear that you're into Jordan Peterson because I am, I'm literally, it was one of those, I'm like, wait, why is this guy controversial? His advice is so real. So, you know, it's one of those where shame hurts and it sucks and nobody wants to feel shame, but man, is it useful. And so when you're in that and you have to take ownership of your own life and you're looking at the world works some kind of way, right? Like you think about lobsters and serotonin and competence hierarchies and all that stuff. And you start going, yeah. hey, maybe there's really something to this. And maybe I would feel better about myself if I toughened up, started working harder, demonstrated discipline, cultivated discipline, quite frankly, and you know, started doing my thing. And so my version of cleaning my room was I get out of bed in 10 minutes or less, no matter what. And that one thing, and unfortunately, when I was young, I didn't have a Jordan Peterson, but that one thing completely changed the course of my life. So I'm thinking my father-in-law doesn't believe in me. My now fiance will get drugged down if I don't figure this out. And she's literally betting on me and I need to take responsibility. Oh, and by the way, I actually can get better at this. And so you start putting all these pieces together. I start putting rules in my life, like getting out of bed in 10 minutes or less, and things start to change. And I become obsessed with this idea of skills stack. And so you get this first skill, it doesn't seem all that impressive, but then you get another one that that multiplies the effect of the first one, and then another, and then another. And so it's like, first you learn how to wield a hammer, and then you learn how to nail pieces of wood together and then you learn architecture and then you build your first house and you make a lot of mistakes and then all of a sudden you're building skyscrapers and you're like what the hell this was all because i learned how to use a hammer right and so that's how all of this stuff begins to stack and getting people to understand my my core idea in my life skills have utility now this is one of those things where as we're growing up we acquire skills to get other people off our back So your parents tell you to go to school, so you go to school. You learn history because if you don't, you're going to fail the class and the teacher is going to fucking complain and your parents are going to be angry. And so you're not doing it because you're like, yo, if I understand history, I can do X, Y, Z, like the one that kills me. I really wish I'd paid more attention in class in math because as an entrepreneur, I'm using math every day. Now, Mm -hmm. when you ask your math teacher, when am I ever going to use this? They don't have an answer. Because they learned it in school and then they started teaching it in school. So they actually don't even know how it applies on the real world. Now, I don't like fault them for that. It's like what they're great at is teaching. So you need somebody who's great at using it to come and teach, which very rarely happens until the Internet. And now you have the most extraordinary people who use this stuff on a daily basis telling you how to do it. Like I tell people, look, as an entrepreneur, I've spent the last 20 years making a whole lot of mistakes and building some very successful businesses. I will give you every secret I have as fast as I can talk 
But ultimately, it comes down to, are you doing something with those skills? All right, guys, we got to take a quick break from this amazing episode to talk to you guys about our amazing sponsors over at Skillshare. Skillshare is a one-of-a-kind online learning community where you can learn all types of amazing creative, entrepreneurial, design skills that you can be able to add to your everyday life to become the best version of yourself. Guys, all throughout the episode, you're going to be getting so many amazing, tangible tips and so much gems so that you guys can be the best version of yourself and Skillshare has so many free I'm talking about free online course that you can take today you can sign up for these things I know a lot of guys have been loving the how to find your purpose course and so many other courses that are available for free on Skillshare so go to skillshare.com slash roommates to get your one month free of Skillshare premium so many men in the roommates community have been doing Skillshare have been growing from Skillshare and you need to join their numbers skillshare.com slash roommates and let's get back to this week's episode and that's so powerful, man. Um, it's funny because um, in my early 20s as well, I was a teacher. I think at 23 years old, I moved to Texas and I became a teacher. And no, I'm sorry, 21, I started teaching. That's when I was doing preschool. And then I moved to Texas at 23 to do middle school and high school. And then when I was teaching, I felt like during that period of time, by giving information to others and challenging others, especially young men, those were the moments in which I feel like I experienced the most growth myself because like you were saying, you have this incongruency when you're telling Jack and Jill that they can climb the hill, but then you weren't doing it yourself. And so I definitely feel like that teaching component was really transformational to helping me apply the information to my own personal life that I knew in my mind. And so um, you, the switch um, clicks in your brain the shame motivates you to want to be more successful, to motivate you to actually take practical um, steps into your life. Where do these business guys come about? <laughs> like, I feel like they're just like, they're like some uh, angels from heaven. Like, where, did, <laughs> where did these guys come about from? You know, man, it, there, there actually is an element to that where when I look back on my life, look, luck is a real thing. And so yeah. they happen to see me speaking about film. And which was me in my element, right? That was me at my absolute best. And they said, look, we're starting a company and you seem bright and we need somebody that can basically be a copywriter. And why don't you come with us? And we look for partners, we settle for employees. So don't act like an employee. If you can get good enough, we'll actually make you a partner in the, the company. Now you have to earn that. And this is going to be a battle, like it's not going to be handed to you. But if you come in and you get so good that we'd rather give you equity than lose you, then we'll give you equity. Now, I saw them make that pitch to dozens of people, dozens and dozens. Okay, and saw, so you weren't the only one. <laughs> no, no, no. Because what they, they understood something that I think is incredibly powerful. And I put that to use in my own businesses, which is no matter how smart you are, you can't do it by yourself. So there's yes. an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go in a group. And they really understood mm. that. And so they created this sort of battle dome environment where it was very like aggressive, very uh, like not doggy dog. It wasn't quite that, but it was, dude, no punches were pulled. If you did something dumb, they would tell you that it was dumb and they would give you an emotional kick to the face. And so yeah. it just broke most people. And I remember watching it unfold and I'm like, this breaks most of the people that it touches. Like most people can't make this work, but for whatever reason, it was exactly what I needed. And mm. that there's just enough um, contrarian in me, enough like, I'm not gonna let you be right in me that I push mm -hmm. back. And so in, in learning to fight against people that were so much further ahead than me, it really sharpened my skills. And so I went from who's the kid to becoming a partner in the company. And then ultimately, long story condensing here, but I'm just there to chase money. As I was explaining earlier, it becomes just absolutely emotionally destructive. I finally realized feeling alive is all that matters in life. So I went in and quit, but by then I was worth about $2 million on paper. I gave that back, which was like this huge thing for me to say, it's no longer about money for me. It's about something else entirely. And so 
they end up saying, hey, look, you've become so important. We want to keep working with you. What would that need to look like? And the punchline to what that would need to look like, given the three of us, this wasn't just me, but given the three of us, it became Quest. And so they made me an equal partner in that company. So from the jump, look, we're going to be building this from the ground up together. And so it was like I had that sort of Terror Dome battle experience, you know, coming up. Learned a lot of lessons from that. Obviously ends up making me tremendously wealthy. And then as I now build my own environment, I'm trying to take all of the amazing things at work. Hey, I'm, I want people that rise up. So I give every full-time employee at Impact Theory has equity in the company because I want them to feel that same sense of ownership that I felt to get people to go that extra mile, to collect people for whom like they're just on a mission for themselves like they're not here to please Tom. They're here to please themselves, to do something for themselves. They've got a chip on their shoulder. They've got something that's driving them, but then nurture them. And I view myself as the soil in which other people are going to grow. And, but at the same time, I'm trying to grow. I'm trying to be like the biggest, baddest tree in this garden. You know what I mean? But at the same yeah, time, I want to make yeah. sure that other people get enough light to shine and to grow themselves. Um, and so I feel tremendously fortunate for having met those guys, that they saw me at my best. And so they took a chance on a kid um, that really didn't have a lot to show for himself. Um, and then the rest was, you know, tooth and nail, clawing my way up, learning, getting better every day. And then the big one was knowing how to emotionally soothe myself so that I could be in an environment like that. Um, and then keep recentering myself, not get distracted, not break, not retreat, you know, to a hole, but to come out swinging every day. And look, don't get me wrong. I developed tremendous anxiety through that whole process because literally every day was like, you're coming in, you know, like this, but it worked. And so, yeah. I am beyond joyful for the 14 year partnership that I had with those guys. It was absolutely extraordinary, completely life changing. So my question is, how long did it take you to become a partial partner from your uh, initial um, being? Um, um, I don't joining remember. Their... Probably five years, something like that. Okay. So then, it took you about five years. What would you say was the biggest? I mean, obviously perseverance, and there's a lot of different things that you could probably imagine. But what was the biggest thing that you feel like separated you from everybody else that made them want to make you a partial partner? Two things: resilience. So you didn't have to pull punches with me. Uh, you could just be fucking blunt. You could be as aggressive as you wanted, and I was gonna come back. And then I actually got good. And there's just no sidestepping that one. You you have to go acquire the skills. And so I was I would work all day with them, and then I would go home and launch companies at night, like trying to do affiliate marketing and you know just like anything that I could to get better. And all mm -hmm. of those side companies that I tried failed to like a, a T. But it was such a incredible learning ground where now I'm like, okay, I'm here and I've got these guys that can give me guidance, but then I'm going off and deploying this against things that I'm trying to build. And you know, when it's your own money on the line, like suddenly you're like, whoa, like you really yeah, have yeah. to be thoughtful, you know, about what you're doing and learning about PL and all that stuff. So yeah. getting good at business ultimately was the punchline. Cool. And then, so you became a full partner and started Quest at what age? Ooh, how old was I? Uh, we started Quest. We started talking about Quest in like 2008, 2009. It launched in 2010. So I would have been, let's see, that's 11 years ago. So I would have been 34. Okay. So three years later, it took you to go kind of from partial to full partner. And, and, and so, no, I, I love your story, man, because, I mean, all the themes that I've, I tell people all the time um, and, and with the roommates, it's, it's manifesting in your life. I think the first thing is, like you said, um, the, the, the acquisition of skills, the building block of skills. And so I think sometimes a lot of guys, they, they're unfortunately because of social media and things along those lines, they think that the story is, you know, I just do something once and I become a billionaire, I become a millionaire, I become uber successful. And they don't realize that life is a marathon, it's not a, a sprint. So there's a, there's a constant building block process where you're building yourself up to the man that God created you to be. And the biggest thing that happens is that the guys who are able to actually endure the process, the guys who are able to now persevere through the difficulties, 
those are the ones that experienced the success. And so I could imagine there was plenty of time from 26 to 31 or 25 to 30, whatever year it was when you were working with these men where there was times you wanted to quit, where there was times you probably didn't see that, okay, I could, you know, sell out of a billion dollar business one day. There was probably times that you were down and distraught, but there was that resilience piece that projected you forward. And I think it's so important yeah, men and women hear that from your story because so many people are so obsessed with instant success and the moment they don't get instant success, they're so quick to quit. Dude, that, that really is like everything. And I'll even add, I'll make this a little bit harder. So I think that success is a marathon length sprint. And I, there's an idea that I think is really important for people to understand. It's escape velocity. So escape velocity is how fast something has to travel in order to escape the pull of Earth's gravity. And so a rocket must hit escape velocity in order to get up into orbit or outer space. And success demands the same thing. So you can work really hard for a really long time, literally 40, 50 years, but never hit escape velocity. And so you never get enough momentum to really achieve outsized success. And so the number one problem that I see is you have really talented, really smart people that are working really hard, but they just, they feel that working hard should be enough. Mm. And one thing that I hear people say, cause I say you have, there's three things you have to do. You have to work hard, you have to work smart and you have to work long hours. And mm -hmm. people are like, well, Tom, if I work hard and smart, why do I have to work long hours? And I'm like, because you're going up against me and I'm willing to do all three. <laughs> And yeah. the reality is that's what your goal demands. So if you, this is a really interesting idea. I forget where I first heard this. So this is definitely credit to somebody else, but this idea that your goals will dictate what you must do. So if you want to be yes. a champion, that tells you what you have to do today. Like Kobe did the things that championship rings demanded. It wasn't like he just made it up. It was like, if you want to get that good at basketball, such that, other people can be paid millions of dollars to stop you from scoring points and they can't do it. They have every incentive in the known universe to stop you from scoring, but you've gotten so good because your goals demand it. You've gotten so good that he scored 81 points in a single game. It's like that to me, that's escape velocity. That is getting so good at something that even though the world is I mean, just the second law of thermodynamics is that everything moves towards chaos. So trying to build a company, trying to become an athlete, trying to become a filmmaker, whatever. Like there are so many chaotic elements working against you to punch through that and get the level of success that you want. It takes an inhuman amount of effort. Yeah. And if you're not willing to put in that inhuman amount of effort every day, day after day, after day, after day, year after year, you're never going to make it. And it's like, yeah, look, you have no moral obligation to pursue outsized success. Joy is the only thing that matters. How you feel about yourself when you're by yourself, okay? That's the punchline. It isn't fame, it isn't accolades, it isn't um, you know, reaching the top of your career. It's none of that. It's how you feel about yourself when you're by yourself. It's making sure that your life is full of joy. So you do not need to pursue greatness or anything like that, but if you're going to, one, yeah. fall in love with the pursuit, not the attainment, because attainment can never help you. No matter how much you get, it is just an imperative, a biological imperative of the human animal to pursue more, okay? That's how evolution kept us alive. So I promise you, a billion dollars suddenly will be like, but bro, I only have a billion. Like, what am I supposed to do with a billion? I need 10 billion. Yeah. You're gonna get to 10 billion and you're gonna need 100 billion. And the reality is because the human mind is wired for pursuit. So you need to fall in love with the pursuit and not the having. But if you fall in love with that pursuit, then working extraordinarily hard over extraordinarily long periods of time is joyful. But yeah, pe people are going to have to work way harder, way longer, and with way more intensity than they think. But yeah, so when I was a teacher, and, and then I became a football coach. I would take my kids to these camps because they were really great players who were in their local districts. And I would take them to these nationwide camps. And what you would learn is that, you know, everybody there was talented, and, but then and everybody worked hard. 
but you could clearly see the kids who were working longer hours that were putting in a lot of work. And a lot of these kids right now, I'm, I'm turning on the TV, and these kids are in the NFL. And a lot of my students, unfortunately, weren't there because they didn't realize exactly the dreams that they wanted to, like you said, to be on that Kobe Bryant 1% level. They didn't understand what those things took. And I absolutely love you talking about the pursuit, right? You know, you, you love in the process and not the results. Because what it seems like to me is that you were a man who was pursuing purpose and not monetary success. Because if the goal is simply monetary success, I mean, you've achieved that multiple times, you know, unless you're trying to get to that, you know, uh, Elon Musk $100 billion goal, but you were, you were, you were pursuing purpose, which after making an exorbitant amount of money, you were still passionate and you're still enthusiastic and you're still desiring to build things that will not only transform society, but also benefit you know, your, your loved ones as well. So if you were to sum up your purpose in one or two sentences, what do you feel like Tom Bailu's purpose that continues to motivate him every single day is? So my mission is to make sure that nobody gets to the age of 15 without encountering a growth mindset. And I plan to do that through story so that we can reach scale. Um, personally, in my own life, it's just about transforming my potential into actual usable skill set that serves myself and other people. So it's like you've got the, the underlying core of it, but then it has to manifest in the world in a specific way. So I'm turning my potential into skills that make sure that nobody gets to the age of 15 without encountering a growth mindset. Awesome. And then at what age did you start Impact Theory? Uh, I would have been, this was five years ago, so I would have been 40. Okay. And so starting Quest 35, 36, so Quest start you i've heard you share the story before like everybody was like why are you gonna get into the nutrition business it's not smart this that and the third um at what year did did you realize that oh wow this is gonna be a hit around, around what time we knew that it had real potential but our thing was we were making a product that the three of us wanted to eat and so there wasn't anything like it on the market so from that perspective right from the jump we knew this has real potential um but very early on, I'll say within the first year, once we got over the hurdle, because everybody at that time was saying, I don't eat protein bars, they're basically junk food, because we were going after bodybuilders, right? The general public maybe didn't have that opinion, but bodybuilders did. And so just getting them to try it was like a struggle. And, you know, talk about going hard to like seed all this stuff, like... I was hand delivering things to people that I thought might have influence. I was flying out to meet people that I thought had influence. I mean, I was just going absolutely crazy, trying to like get people to understand what this was. But yeah, by the end of the first year, we were like, okay, there's something here. I can't remember exactly when we got profitable, but it might've been like less than a year. If I remember right, it was like in the eight to 10 month period. Now we were very small. But it was like, we could already see, wait a second, like there's really an appetite for this. We have to work hard to get people to try it. But once they try it, they're in. So very yeah. early we were like, okay, there's, there's some real energy here. That's awesome. And so I think that's interesting because like I said, now you're at 36, this is your umpteen for whatever company it was, you guys started it off one or two years later, you see it's profitable, but then still at 40 years old, and I can only imagine the success that was going on with Quest at that time, you still had a desire to start Impact Theory, where everybody else in the world, you know, fire, retire early, you know, go on a private island and drink margaritas and just, you know, live the, the, the dream life. Like, and, and I feel like the only thing that compelled you was you had a meaningful purpose. And, and I feel like so many people, when I talk to a lot of young adults who want to be successful, everybody, the win is simply make a lot of money, go on an island, drink margaritas, and do nothing for the rest of my life. But that's just a meaningless life. I like to I'm reading 12 Rules for Life again, and Jordan Peterson talks about that. And I know a lot of people, successful people talk about that as well. And so what was the burning passion that was that was inside you that said, you know what, I want to start Impact Theory. I want to start something else from the ground up, even though you had so much success outside of you and you could have easily just mailed it in. So remember, I learned very early that I'm chasing money every day. I chase money, literally my stated goal. I am here to get rich. I am learning business to get rich. There's nothing yes. else in it for me. And 
through that process, I end up being worth about $2 million on paper and being, which the difference between being worth money on paper and actually having money in your bank account is night and day. So let's start with that. Um, but <laughs> You would know. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it was soul crushing. It just, I didn't, all you have is your neurochemistry. So it's yeah. like, if you're happy, that, that's a, an actual state of being. If you are miserable, then it doesn't matter what I give you. And so it started to click for me that how many billionaires have to commit suicide before you realize money's not the answer. And so, so the, the great news is, so I've lived through this really fascinating trajectory. So chase money for a decade, realize, wow, I'm, I'm profoundly unhappy. I am living the cliche of money can't buy happiness. Okay, so why am I unhappy? Because the thing that I do on a day-to-day -day basis, I find boring. I'm just not interested. So now I'm spending the vast majority of my life doing something that is very hard in this terror dome environment, and I don't care about it. So I'm suffering, I'm getting more and more anxious, and I'm not doing anything on a day-to-day -day basis that I love. And so the neurochemical response to that is just, you're just deflated. It's not fun. And so I was like, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. So now I sever that relationship between me and money. And I realize, okay, the struggle is guaranteed. The success is not. So I better learn to love the struggle. So yeah. there's a question that in like mindset fields, people will tell you, this is what you have to ask. This is going to tell you what to do with your future. If you knew you couldn't fail, what would you do? Now, yeah. that is the wrong question to ask. Mm -hmm. The right question to ask is, what would you do and love every day, even if you were failing? Yeah. Now, if you pursue that thing, nothing can touch you because even in failure, your life is full of joy. So I started yeah. doing that. So it became about attaching a strong emotional relationship to an actual human being to whatever company I was going to build. So as my partners and I were discussing what's going to be that next company, we were all obsessed with nutrition, but it wasn't self-evident to me that I wanted to build a nutrition company. But I was like, you know, these guys are so good and I want to stay partners with them. How could I attach to a nutrition company? I know my mom and my sister are morbidly obese, so I could show up every day thinking about them fighting for them. And so for three very different reasons, we end up founding Quest. For me, it was just about my mom and my sister. So this is a real story. I was once at the factory. It was 2 a.m. on a Friday night when everybody else is out clubbing. And I'm under the wrapping machine trying to fix it. My knuckles are bloody because, you know, you're in there. And I swore my whole upbringing because my dad loved cars, always wanted me to learn how to work on cars. I hated it so much. I can't even tell you. And so I swore I would never be somebody that had bloody knuckles from working on something. And there I am mm. on a Friday, <laughs> you know, in my, what are we like early thirties at this point. So it's like prime sort of party years. And yeah. I'm fixing a piece of equipment with grease on my hands, blood on my knuckles. And I was in love with it because I was mm. doing it for my mom and my sister. And so That's that awesome. gave me the sense of like, yo, I can show up every day and fight for them. So fast forward, impact theory. Okay, now you're super rich. You're no longer fighting for your mom and your sister. You no longer need to work ever again. But I knew that the only thing that matters is having meaning and purpose. And that if you don't have that, no matter how much money you have, you are going to slide to a very dark place. Nature has ensured it. So I realized, okay, I have to have meaning and purpose. So I'm not going to just buy an island and retire. So what do I do? And through that whole process of building quest, this becomes a very long story. So to get into film school, I needed extra credit to get the extra credit. They sent me to mentor a little kid in the inner cities. So USC is in the middle of the ghetto. It is one of the worst neighborhoods in America, South central Los Angeles, which if you've seen boys in the hood, that literally is where it's set. And so I end up big brothering for this kid who they give you like the most problematic child in the most problematic school district in the country, just to give you an idea. Yeah. And yeah. long story short, I end up making a promise to this kid that as long as I live in Los Angeles, I will help him with his homework. And so what was meant to be an eight week relationship becomes an eight and a half year relationship and ends up mm. having a massive impact on my life. I end up moving to London for a while. He gets put into foster care. Again, this is an incredibly complicated story that I'm making very brief and I lose contact with him. Flash forward 15 years later, I now have 3000 employees. 
and a thousand of them remind me of this kid. And I'm like, all right, mm. I did not save this kid from his zip code, but I'm going to help these people. And so I start Quest yeah. University. And I said, look, I'll come early. I'll stay late. I will teach you anything and everything I know about entrepreneurship, including how to build a competitive nutrition company. I won't keep a single secret from you. Like I was saying at the beginning, yeah. I will give you all of my secrets as fast as I can talk. It will be up to you to go and do something with it, but I'll tell you everything that I can. And so what I realized is 2% of those people do something with that information. It changes yeah. their life forever. I still get phone calls and text messages from people who are like, yo, I used to make $32,000 a year. I'm now making over $100,000 a year because of you. You taught me about skill acquisition, all this stuff. Amazing. But I'm a scale guy. So I'm never going to say, as long as I helped one person, my thing is, fuck that noise. That's only 2% of people. What do I need to do for the yeah. 98%? So my wife and I start looking at it like, no bullshit, what would it take to have impact on the 98% so that they change their lives and we get you know this much bigger effect. And my theory on how to impact people at scale, hence the name impact theory, becomes the only way to do it is to get them when they're young. There's this thing called the age of imprinting from 11 to 15, and you have to do it through culturally influential elements. So basically it's either gonna be music, storytelling, or video games. Since I don't know music, yeah. that leaves storytelling and video games. And so, boom, that becomes the thesis of impact theory. So all the stuff that I'm sort of known for publicly is the 2% stuff, where I look into a camera yeah. and I say, think like this, act like this, and your life will be better. Now, yeah. that's all the people watching your show, they're the 2%. The rest of the world is the 98%, and that's where we spend our time building a studio that's actually going to rival Disney. No, that's that's awesome, man, because, um, man, true, true enough, true enough story. When I was a teacher, you know, I, I went into teaching because I just had a heart and passion of, of really impacting, no pun intended, <laughs> impacting young, the lives of young men. And at that time, I realized that, you know, there was like 12 kids who I was really investing deeply into um, when I was like 25 years old. And I realized how unsustainable that was because the next year I got a new group of kids um, and I couldn't do what I did for the second group that I did for the first group. And I was like, man, I, I, in order for me to truly impact the masses, it just can't be me and I need more resources. So it's funny that you mentioned that because the main reason why I got out of teaching, I, I loved it. I was helping people, I was transforming lives, but it, it wasn't enough. You know, some people, their dream is if you just help one person, that's great. That was never my thing, like, similar to you. <laughs> and so when I decided to leave teaching, it was a very heartbreaking thing. But what ends up happening was I went on this pursuit of, you know, getting more resources, which made me want to get into film. Like, it's kind of your story, but just a, a little backwards. Maybe want to get into film. I started making films, try to get into USC film school, a long story. But similar to you, I realized that, yes, like, what needs to happen in society is what's so important is impacting those that cannot be reached. I taught preschool, elementary, middle school, and high school, so you're definitely right. One of the, my main reasons of going to preschool was because I, I mean, sorry, preschool, middle school, was I realized that, man, 13-year-old um, um, students, they may be the most difficult to deal with, but they're also the ones where you can impact them the most. Mm -hmm. No pun intended again. <laughs> and so to me, that it's so fascinating that you have that similar passion and that burden, and it makes so much sense why that compels you to want to keep going, that com compels you to want to strive harder, that compels you because I really believe having those meaningful passions, those meaningful purposes, having a meaningful why can compel you instead of just wanting to pursue success for simple vanity's sake. So I, I really want to commend you. It's, it's really uh, encouraging hearing your story. And I, and I hope that every single man and woman listening to this episode can find that as well, because it's so important to have that, especially in the midst of difficulty and definitely in the midst of success. Dude, facts, facts, no doubt. So one of the so I'm I'm curious you're you're on a really big NFT and crypto wave now where where did that come from So when I look at how do you impact people one of the questions is where's the energy going and 
reading culture and knowing where culture is going is incredibly important if you want to have that kind of impact. And then also just understanding that technology is a one-way street and it is going to happen whether people want it to or not. And so you can fight technology or you can learn how to leverage it. And so I knew I had been introduced to NFTs about six years ago and I looked at it and was like, whoa, this is going to change my business forever. And then promptly forgot about it because it wasn't ready yet. And then when it surfaced again, I was like, oh, my God, this is that thing. It wasn't called NFTs when I learned about it. Um, this is that thing. And so, boom, we pivoted hard, started allocating millions of dollars in development um, to NFT projects because once you realize that NFTs are a technology, they are not a JPEG, they are a technology. One of the ways that you can use that technology is with a JPEG, but it's the metadata that's imbued into that JPEG that's the magic. And so when people are like, why would you pay money for that? I could just screenshot that. It's like, it's to fail to understand the technological component of this. So NFTs are now exactly where the internet was in 97. And so people looked at websites in 97 and were like, this is dumb. But you can't, it's hard to predict what's going to be the Uber moment, right? Where you go, oh my God, like all these things have come together. The mobile internet, mobile phones, um, the, just the idea of distributed workforces, and you get this thing that completely disrupts industries, same with Airbnb, so on and so forth. So there's all these things that end up getting built on the back of it that end up being incredibly transformational. And then that also, in learning about the blockchain to leverage in my you know, studio, I ended up learning about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and Ethereum and was like, whoa, this is going to change the world. Now, does it change the world in the next five years or the next 50 years? It depends on how much governments get involved and try to slow it down. You won't be able to stop it. You will not be able to stop it. There's just no two ways about that. And so once you understand that, like, wait a second, technology is a one-way street, meaning we will digitize everything that we can digitize, including our lives, living in the metaverse, all of that. But money has just been digitized, or I guess 12 years ago or whatever. So now it's like, hey, this has created a once in a, not even generation, it's like a once in a hundred year event, 200 year event, 500 year event, like, or is this the newest thing since gold? So a once in a 5,000 year event. So it's like people really have to wrap their heads around that. And this is the most important thing. And, and I will leave this with everybody listening to this. If you look at this and conclude that it's stupid, fair enough. But don't dismiss it without looking at it because this is the first time in human history where the average person has been able to front run the institutions, meaning you can get involved in cryptocurrency before the big hedge funds and things that will milk all the value out of it. Every other time, because of the accredited investing laws, which are insane in my opinion, the average person, the government's saying they're protecting you, but it's really hard to get out of whatever sort of um, niche that you grew up in financially because you can't invest in most things. So all you're left with is the stock market. So whether they have the right intentions or not, I'll leave other people to decide, but the effect is that it makes it very hard for people to get in on things. Now, that's different with cryptocurrency. And so this is a huge opportunity I'm not a financial advisor. I cannot see the future. This is not financial advice. I'm just begging people to do their own research. So I'll say this about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the fastest adopted technology in human history. Faster than electricity, faster than the railroads, faster than the internet, faster than computers, faster than mobile phones. Okay, so it's the fastest adopted technology in human history. And the only technology that's being adopted faster than Bitcoin is Ethereum. So that should tell people that this is at least worth looking into. Yes. So how would you explain NFTs to that 15 year old student in Compton? How would you simply explain NFTs to him? All right. So NFTs are, it's a technology. That's the important part. And the easiest way to understand what a non fungible token, because that's what NFT stands for, is to understand what a fungible token is, because these are just fancy words for really simple concepts. So money is fungible. So if you have two fives and I have a $10 bill, we can exchange those. And even though they're different, we're both like, eh, same value. When you get to art, art is typically non-fungible. 
Meaning, if you have a copy of the Mona Lisa that was painted by Leonardo da Vinci, and I have a painted copy of the Mona Lisa that is brush stroke identical, but it was painted by me, and if I'm holding them up, nobody can tell the difference, but you turn them around, one is signed by me, one is signed by Leonardo da Vinci, the one signed by da Vinci is going to be way more valuable. So even though they look the same, you can't exchange them. So money, even when it looks different, if it has the same value, you can exchange it. Paintings, even when they look the same, you can't exchange them. They are non-fungible. So now with digital goods, they have historically always been, you can just, one is as good as the other. So if I go in and you have the Mona Lisa digitally, I can go screenshot it and now I have the Mona Lisa digitally and they are pixel identical and there's nothing special about yours. And even if you say, yeah, but I'm the one that took this copy of it. And so it means something for people that love and care about me. The problem is, how do you prove it? So anybody else could go and take it and say, no, 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 this is the one that was screenshotted by him. What the blockchain allows you to do is give metadata to that image. Now, with all this infrastructure being built, I can give you different things based on the metadata. So on October 13th, we're going to be launching a project, a product, excuse me, called the Impact Theory Founders Key. Now, if you get one of these, then I can give you access, whether it's phone calls with me, whether it's um, I air, airdrop you, which is just give you something for free, whether it's let you into a live event. There's an inhuman number of things that we can do with that because I can prove that it's one of the ones that I created that was actually paid for and is actually owned by you. And so now this thing, while it is an image and yes, somebody could screenshot it, they won't have the metadata underlying it. So when they come to my event and I go to scan it, I'm gonna say, this isn't real. And so now you realize, whoa, even though it's digital and it may look the same, underneath the hood, it's very different and I can prove that it's different. That makes perfect sense. So, Tom, I don't want to keep you now. I know you're a busy man. that got a lot of a lot of um, lives to change and a lot more money to make. So, um, I, I want I just want to get your opinion on on one last conversation, and I'll and I'll be out of you here. So, uh, um, one of my favorite things I tell people all the time is I I love to follow and learn from people I want to be like Gary V, uh, Patrick Bed David, Jordan B Peterson, men like you. Like I like to follow guys who I like to be like. And a lot of you guys, almost all of you guys are married. And within a lot of young male adults, there's a lot of conversations about marriage and the benefits of marriage and whether guys today should get married. And so I'm curious, in, in, um, you're probably for marriage since you've been married for so long, <laughs> but for what, what is your thoughts upon the benefits of marriage for young men today and what, what are your thoughts about those who say that there, 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 are, there are little to none be, no benefits? So marriage is the greatest gift of my life. And I would not be who I am if it wasn't for my wife. And there is a fascinating dynamic between men and women that manifests itself in a healthy marriage. Now, the problem is I find most people don't know how to create a healthy marriage. And I would rather be single than in an unhealthy marriage, but I would rather be in a healthy marriage than anything. And so nothing has given me more joy, more helped me develop my potential more than my marriage to my wife. And so nothing's more important to me. I am very clear that my marriage is my number one priority. My business is number two and my family is number three. So my, my wife is, is my everything, but we, work very diligently to ensure that we have the skill set to navigate that relationship well because it can go toxic very very fast so i think ultimately men and women working together well or any spouse because to be honest like i am i'm so for love i don't care what form it comes in um, i think there are really fascinating dynamics between men and women but love is my real take-home message here so two men, two women, any mix gender could not care less. Love, but being good for each other, elevating each other, um, supporting them, holding them to a standard, not getting down in your knees when they're knocked to theirs, but instead offering a hand and picking them back up and reminding them who they could be. Like that's where this gets amazing. 
but you really have to work at having the right skill set to get the most out of that. No, I, I love that. And it's, and it's in line with the theme of your life, right? So the, the theme of your life is that what you've communicated is building, building skills to achieve success in whatever it may be, if it's in business as well as in marriage. And if for those who don't, do not have the skills, they, it's hard to be very successful in business. And in a similar way, I can only imagine those that don't build the skills and receive the skills, it could be very difficult and challenging to be successful in marriage. So I think sometimes, similar to everything in life, you know, when there's so much of a focus in on the negativity and what can't happen, instead of focusing on the positivity and what could happen by building the necessary skills to achieve the task at hand, I think that's where the, the, the magic should happen. And so I think that's really powerful that you share the impact of that. Um, it's an impact episode <laughs> that you share the impact of that because it's it's so true. Like a good person can only magnify your life, and I and I think it's really encouraging um, that you also emphasize that you definitely need the skills to build what is good, not only in business as well as in your marriage. No doubt, no doubt. Yeah. yeah and if anybody wants to build those skills, my wife and I actually do a show on YouTube called Relationship Theory. So okay. check it out. I think it's the best relationship advice out there. Awesome. Awesome. So, um, okay. Women of impact is different than relationship theory. Yeah. Different shows. Okay, cool. I was confusing that. So my friend was on women of impact. So you guys do relationship theory. Okay. That sounds great. So guys definitely check that out. But Tom, no, thank you so much. I really appreciated today's conversation, man. You have so much great wisdom. I, I love the story. I think there's just so many messages that you share that people can apply to their lives today. Where can people find you at? At Tom Bilyeu. I'm on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, if you're looking for NFT and crypto content, I'm all about that on Twitter and Discord. Um, and then if you want just the straight mindset stuff, that's all. Um, Instagram is probably the right place to be for that. And then obviously YouTube. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And I, and I always ask successful men this question. So I know I said last one, but I'm, 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 I'm really closing with this one. So if it's a 25-year-old guy right now who's living on his mom's couch, is not motivated, and doesn't have many skills, and is lost and confused, what is the closing message you would give to that guy? That ultimately meaning and purpose is what matters, but you have to acquire skills in order to make that come true. And so it's what I call the only belief that matters. The only belief that matters is that if you put time and energy into getting good at something, you will actually get good at that. And then that has utility. And that utility as you help yourself and other people is the meaning and purpose. And so being in that feedback loop of having a reason to pursue the skills, but actually getting the skills and then putting them to use, that's the whole purpose of life. That's awesome. Well, guys, man, please reach out to Tom. Let him know what about the podcast stood out to you guys. Be sure to check out his show, Impact Theory, so you guys can get so much gems and great information. My name is Hafiz, and I'm joined by... Tom Billiou. We're the roommates, and have a great day.